0: This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, the other day, our family had one of those Scooby-Doo episodes, a little Hardy Boy episode. and This one was called The Case of the Missing Blue Jeans. And uh, I had gone a few weeks without three of my favorite blue jeans, three of my preaching blue jeans. And they had just, like, vanished into thin air. And I I searched everywhere, right? I searched the hamper. I searched the washer. I searched the dryer. I searched the dry cleaning bag. I searched the jean drawer. I searched the boys' drawers. Like, their their jeans are getting longer than I think, and, like, they're not as long as mine, but they're close. They can be mixed up, right? I searched every nook and cranny in our house, and they were nowhere, right? And mind you, uh, our house doesn't have that many nooks and crannies. It's rather small. And we were actually starting to wonder if maybe those jeans got mixed up with a pile of clothes that we had donated. You recognize the emotion and the gravity of the situation with that gasp, right? Like I cried myself to sleep that night. I was remembering all the good times that we'd had together, all the places that we'd gone The sermon's preached in those jeans, like they meant so much. And like, you can't can't replace your favorite blue jeans, can you? Then they're not replaceable. And so the next morning, I looked somewhere new. Looked somewhere I'd never looked before. I looked somewhere I'd never even thought of looking. You know where I looked? I looked in the sweater drawer, right? That's the drawer below the blue jean drawer in in my dresser. And when I opened that drawer, right, the heavens opened. The angels sang the hallelujah chorus, and rays of light shone down from heaven, illuminating the missing blue jeans. Hallelujah. They are so good to be back with you this morning. But you know, in the words of that great Irish poet, Bono, (laughs) many of us still haven't found what we're looking for, have we? That's not only true with missing blue jeans, but I think that's true with contentment. Because rather than choosing contentment where God has us, we find ourselves constantly chasing contentment, don't we? we're looking, we're looking in every nook and cranny. We're searching in every drawer but the right drawer, hoping that someone or somewhere or something else can provide that, that contentment that we long for. But what happens is that everything and everywhere and everyone we turn to, we keep coming up short, don't we? Because we're looking in the wrong place. We're turning to the wrong person. And that's exactly what Jesus says here in this passage here in John 4 to the woman at the well as he reveals to her the source of our contentment. That's the title of our sermon this morning, The Source of Our Contentment. So if you haven't already, let's take out our Bibles. Let's open them up to uh, John chapter 4. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. I love how John 4, this chapter here, it weaves uh, three different themes together. It weaves together the theme of pointing people to Jesus, right? We looked at that a couple of years ago as we set out that year to have a thousand conversations with others about Jesus. It weaves together the theme of worship, a theme that we looked at in this chapter the year before. And then this morning, we're going to close our series, Choosing Contentment, looking at this third theme as Jesus reveals to us the true source of lasting contentment. Jesus, he's going to point us to the right door. One that's going to quench our thirst and satisfy our hunger. And the story begins here with Jesus and his disciples. They're, they're heading north out of Judea down here at the bottom of the map. They're heading north to the region of Galilee. And there's a couple of ways they could have made the trip. They could have headed east along the Jordan River Valley. They could have headed west along the Mediterranean coast. But John says here in verse 4, he says, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He, he went along the Central Ridge Road, and, and mind you, not because uh, Google Maps let him know, hey, there's tolls along the Jordan River, right? And so you, you take another role to, you know, you don't want to give the state of Illinois any more money than you've already given them, so you just stay off the toll road just because. I'm not the only one, am I? No. Okay. And it wasn't because Google Maps said that like, traffic was, was not just red, but like burgundy along the Mediterranean coast, like burgundy to where it's like, it's not just come to a standstill, but traffic actually seems to be moving backwards, it's so burgundy. And it wasn't because Samaria was the shortcut. No, the reason wasn't geographical, the reason was theological. There was this divine urging, God was directing his steps. You ever felt that before? You ever experienced that? You heard God calling so, so clearly to something, often to something specific that you can't explain it. You, you might not understand it. You may not even want it. But you know that God's behind it. You know that God's directing it. That's Exactly how I felt six years ago this week when God called me to leave my career at Motorola and step into the role as pastor here at Redemption. The, uh, the Thursday before Thanksgiving, I got a text from my friend Ryan, who was our lead pastor at the time. Thursday, 4.47 p.m. I feel like I'm still back in the case of the missing blue jeans here, giving you the details. He says, hey, buddy, I want to talk with you and Jill about something pertaining to you and full-time ministry any time before the holiday that would work. And then he goes on to list like every possible time frame, morning, afternoon, evening, in between, uh, between now and Thanksgiving to get together. And he came into our kitchen and uh, he said, here's the deal. It's time for me to move on and it's time for you to step up. And it was like, sometimes God gives us like a billboard on I-90 to say, pull off at this exit. And that was the case for me then. Sometimes God's call, it is so clear, he has opened the door and basically kicked you right on through it. You had no choice in the matter almost. Other times God's call is far less clear though, isn't it? Other times God's call isn't so much opening a door as it is closing a door. But what we find is this incredible sense of satisfaction found in living out God's will, isn't there? This sense of contentment that comes with submission to to God's call to following his leading. And that's exactly what Jesus goes on to say later on in verse 34 to his disciples in this passage where he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And and so right away, just in this simple passage of Jesus having to pass through Samaria, we see that, that our hunger is satisfied by accomplishing God's will. There's this contentment that comes in obedience to God. But here's the thing, passing through Samaria, it may have been the most direct route, uh, but it was not the most desired route, and we're going to see that later. Oftentimes, God calls us to things we're not ready for, that we're not wanting. But at the same time, I think um, we've become really good at over-spiritualizing things aren't we? We're good at over-spiritualizing our desires and our decisions as having been directed by God, right? Conveying our constant chasing of contentment as a calling from God, always calling you to, uh, to something new, leading you to somewhere new or to being with someone new. And when that thing or that place or that person fails to provide that contentment you expected them to provide? What seems to always happen is we hear God calling again, don't we? And then we hear God calling again. And we keep hearing God calling again and again and again until he gets it right. And what I wonder is, you know, if God's always leading you where you want to go, when you want to go there, is that God God calling you to something or is that you running from something or avoiding something. Because, see, if God's will always perfectly aligns with your will, it might not be God's will you're pursuing, but your own. Rather than obeying God, sometimes we end up playing God. Rather than choosing contentment, we continue to chase contentment. But, see, sometimes God calls us to places we don't want to go, doesn't he? Sometimes God calls us to remain in places we don't want to stay. But see, contentment is not, it's not found in where God calls you or what God calls you to do. No, it's found in going where call, God calls you and doing what God has commanded of you. Amen? That's the source of contentment. Living out God's will in obedience to God's word. Our hunger is satisfied by accomplishing God's will. In verse 5, it says that Jesus and his disciples, they came to this town of Samaria called Sychar. It's a village in modern-day Western Bank at the base of Mount Gerizim. And they came to a field that Jacob had given his son Joseph, where Joseph's bones are were later laid to rest to Jacob's well. Jacob's well was there. Jacob's well is actually still there to this very day. Uh, Here's a picture of of his well. It's in the the basement of this absolutely beautiful Eastern Orthodox church that's been uh, built over the top of this well to protect it. And it says in verse six, he says, so Jesus, wearied as he was from this journey, he was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. I love how John here gives us a glimpse, revealing the the full humanity of Jesus. See, not only was Jesus fully and truly God, right? Uh, The Word incarnate, the Word made flesh, the Word who was in the beginning with God, as God, but in His incarnation, in His advent, the season that we celebrate, His arrival, His coming, the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us as one of us fully and truly human in every way. Jesus, he ate and he drank. He got tired and took naps. He laughed and he cried. He had friends and they betrayed him. He was tempted and he was tried. And Jesus, he felt the same longings as us. He faced the same cravings as us, including that human desire for contentment. So just like us, Jesus, he was exhausted. He he was hungry after walking some 40 miles over the last day and a half through the rugged hills of Judea in basically in flip-flops. He was hungry, he was tired, he was hot, he was thirsty from the midday desert sun just baking his skin. And so he sent his disciples into town to buy some food. Like, go hit up Mariano's real quick, pick me up something. Go through the Pratillos drive-thru, just make sure you get it wet with hot peppers. Wet with hot peppers. I always want to make sure I'm giving you guys my food choices here, just so you know. Wet with hot peppers. In the meantime, though, Jesus, he took a seat. He sat down beside the well. He kicked up his feet. He's like, I'm just going to rest my eyes for just a second. He's going to get that power nap, you know, the five-minute one, not 15 minutes where you start to get a little, when you wake up, just the kind of where, like, you didn't even know you fell asleep. And as he does, it says in verse 7 that a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, so she must have like woke him up from his little power nap. He was only like two minutes in. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Now the ESV here, it kind of makes it sound like Jesus says, give me a drink, woman. Like he's that rude guy at the bar talking to his waitress that way. Side note, don't be that guy at the bar or the restaurant or the coffee shop or anywhere talking to anybody that way. Um, I like the NIV translation a bit better. It phrases it more as a question as it, as it really is. Will you give me a drink? And it seems like an obvious question, doesn't it? Jesus is thirsty. She's got water. What's the big deal? Two things here in verse 9. It, the woman, she says to him, she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? The first thing we see here is that Jesus, he's approaching a woman. He's initiating this conversation. He's asking her a question, something that would have been almost unthinkable in the first century Jewish culture here. Jewish men, they rarely interacted with women in public, even their wives sometimes, especially women they didn't know, and especially Jesus as a rabbi, as a teacher. Yet here he was openly speaking with a woman. The second is that he was approaching a Samaritan. And in verse 9, it gives us a little clue here that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's uh, John just very politely saying they hated each other. Uh, They had like a 700-year-long rivalry, greater than the Bears-Packerel rivalry. right? Right? What they said. Rivalry. Like, like, this weekend is rivalry weekend in, in college football, and so we got all the good ones. We got the Egg Bowl, we got the Apple Bowl, we got the Iron Bowl. Um, I'm pretty sure that Ohio State lost in their rivalry game yesterday. Yeah? By the way, who at the end of the third quarter of the Iowa-Nebraska game thought Iowa was going to be in the Big Ten championship game? Not this guy. Anyway, go Hawks next Saturday. That's a little side note. But it's bigger than any of those, and here's why. See, some 700 years ago, in 722 BC, the, the Assyrians, the big superpower at the time, they came in and they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and they hauled most all the people away into exile. And some remained, and these outsiders came, and they settled the land, and the two groups kind of came together. Uh, kind of like when you get married and you, you form your own traditions, uh, like Whether it be Thanksgiving or Christmas, you take a little bit from this family side, a little bit from that family side, and you bring in a little bit of new and original stuff, and you kind of got your own new traditions. That's what was happening in Samaria. And, and so what they were doing is they were taking their, their, their worship of their Syrian pagan gods, and they were mixing in some, some worship of, of Yahweh, right, the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they, they, they combined this like, into this new form of worship they They kept the Torah, right the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but they rejected all of the uh, the writings of the prophets. they rejected most of Jewish culture and tradition and, and so some two hundred years later, when the the exiles taken away from, from Judah, when they came back from Babylon uh, and the Samaritans, they came down to say, "Hey, what's up? Uh, how is the exile? It's not too great, is it they uh They didn't really welcome them. Instead, what happened was the Jews, they treated the Samaritans as these foreigners, these these frauds, these half-breed Jews, if you will. They they treated them as as intruders that were invading their homeland. And the hostility just continued to grow over the centuries. uh, The Samaritans, they built their own temple uh, on Mount Gerizim there that was overlooking Jacob's well. They welcomed Jewish refugees that were fleeing from Judea. And the Jews, they responded uh, by by burning that temple to the ground and and even commemorating and celebrating that day as a holiday. And so the Samaritans, they they retaliated, defiling the temple in Jerusalem, scattering bones of the dead over the floor of the temple. And, And see, the Jewish hatred of the Samaritans was so great that Many would just assume walk around versus taking the shortcut through. Their hatred was so great that Jesus chose a Samaritan in telling a parable to help explain what loving your neighbor as yourself is supposed to look like. And I'm wondering, how much has changed in 2,000 years? Do we as God's people, do we as the church do we look any different? Do we still treat others as outsiders? Right? Treating others who may have voted differently or, or gone about the pandemic differently, who look or sound different, who believe or behave different, who have experienced different situations or, or struggle with different sin, rather than treating them as human beings created in the image of God, do we treat them as unwelcome outsiders? loathing them rather than loving them, loving one another, loving our neighbor, even loving our enemy and praying for those who persecute us. Because when we do that, what we end up doing is we end up pushing people away from Jesus rather than pointing them to Jesus, don't we? We're wagging our finger at them rather than putting our arm around them. See, we, we can't carry out the Great Commission without living out the Great Commandment, can we? We can't point people to Jesus without loving like Jesus. And I also wonder if in part that our lack of contentment, some of it, um, is the result of this constant tension and friction and aggravation that we have with others, this animosity and hatred towards others, constantly focused on trying to identify who the latest outsider is, defining our tribe and protecting our border of our tribe. And so I want to ask this morning, who is that other that you treat as an outsider? Who is that other that you treat as an outsider that you think is unwelcome, that you think is unworthy, that you think is undeserving, undeserving of God's love, of his grace, of his mercy? It might be a type of person who lives a certain way, who thinks a certain way. It might be a group of people. It might even be yourself that you think is undeserving. You might view yourself as the outsider, the unwelcome outsider. And yet here's Jesus, a Jewish man interacting with someone who represents the intersection of the most despised and least valued group in the eyes of the first century Jewish culture, a Samaritan woman. Here she is, she came to the well at noon. She came to the well at the sixth hour. She came to the well in the heat of the day when most of the other women would have come in the cool of the day, in the morning or the, the evening. Right? She had been made to feel an outsider by her own people. But here's the thing about Jesus. Right? Jesus values those his culture perceived as having no value, didn't he? He's breaking cultural norms throughout the gospel, speaking to women, welcoming children, Caring for the sick, defending the poor, sharing meals with sinners, reclining at a table with tax collectors, loving the unlovely, loving you and loving me. But that's what loving like Jesus looks like, isn't it? And each interaction that we see in the Gospels is a window into the heart of Jesus, who came to seek and save the lost, didn't he? who came to liberate the oppressed and set the captives free as we sang this morning welcoming the outsider as an insider by reconciling us in him on the cross to god and to one another i think we're quick to forget that we are those outsiders that jesus welcomed as insiders aren't we the thing is is when you've been in the club so long when you've been an insider for so long you start to view everyone else as the outsider But Jesus, rather than treating her as an outsider, he treated her as an image bearer. He, he invited her in. He welcomed her in. And, and in verse 10, Jesus answered her and he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you only knew who I am sitting next to you, speaking with you? God incarnate the word in flesh and what it is that I'm offering you this, this free gift of God with, with no strings attached, then the roles would have been reversed. And she says to him in verse 11, she says, sir, you have, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He, he gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. She's like, you're funny, dude. But I don't think so. She didn't trust the gift because she didn't trust the giver of the gift, did she? In verse 11, we see her, she questions Jesus' ability, doesn't she? She's like, you've got nothing to draw water with. You've got no bucket, no, no rope. And the well is deep. It's about 135 foot deep. And so if you're not drawing water from this well, then where exactly are you getting that living water you claim to have? right? You've got like a bottle hidden under your tunic there? You're going gonna to tap a, tap a rock and rock water come out from a rock? Who you are you? You think you're Moses? It's like, no, what is living water? Don't you think she's got to be wondering what this living water is? She's like, is this like some new super secret flavor of La Croix that, um, that like comes from Ponce de Leon's Fountain of Youth or something? Is that what this is? She questions his ability. And then in verse 12, she questions his authority. She's like, who do you think you are? You think you're greater than Jacob? By the way, I can't not hear that question um, being asked by a certain pastor in a certain tone from a certain podcast about the rise and fall of a certain church. Who do you think you are? It's like, I don't know if you know this, but um, this guy Jacob, he, he wrestled with God. He got his name changed to Israel. Like, we're named after this guy. He had 12 sons, okay? This guy was legit, He's kind of a big deal in this, this well we're sitting on. He gave us this well, right? It's kind of like a family heirloom. He, he, he drank from this well himself, kind of like, like he got a water bottle that MJ drank from before he took the shot in game six of the, of the 98 finals. Like, if you got that water bottle, you're telling everybody about living water coming from that thing. And his sons drank from it, Judah, Joseph. You probably never heard of them either if you never heard of Jacob. Even then his, his livestock drank from this well, I really think she should have stopped before that. Uh, I don't know if that did what she thought it was doing. That's not really a selling point of a well, at least for me. It's like, you don't think you're you're greater than the guy that dug this well that has provided us water in the desert for centuries, do you? Jesus is like, yeah, I do. And what I love about her is is she's skeptical, right? She's skeptical here. She didn't trust the gift of living water that he was offering because she didn't trust the giver of the gift. She didn't trust the source. And I think if we're honest for a moment, we've all been there, haven't we? Doubting Jesus' authority, doubting that he is who he says he is, doubting Jesus' ability that he'll actually do all that he's promised to do. And when we doubt and when we question it, it oftentimes leaves us angry at Jesus, right? We've been been let down by so many, hurt so many times that it it feels as though Jesus has abandoned. And so we push Jesus further away. And, And that leads us to feeling ashamed that maybe I don't deserve Jesus. And so you not only push Jesus away, but you walk away. And this woman, she had every right to be angry at the way she was treated. Later on, we read that she had been abandoned, not once, not twice, but by five men in her life that she had married. This woman, she gets a bad rap, it's always put on her that she's the one. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was five guys that treated her wrong and five men that abandoned her. She had every right to be angry at the way she was treated. She had every she was feeling ashamed by the way the village treated her, coming to the well alone in the middle of the day, avoiding the crowd. But what I love is that while she was skeptical, while she was pushing back, she was also intrigued, wasn't she? She was being drawn in. She was listening. She was still asking questions. She wanted to learn more. And then I started thinking about how unlike Jesus we are. I I think... Think about how we usually respond when someone pushes back on us, when someone doubts us, when someone doesn't trust us. What we often do is we hear their question as an accusation, don't we? We hear their question as an accusation, and rather than engaging in conversation, we escalate the conversation. And our defensive posture it it, it divides rather than discusses, rather than listening, rather than learning, rather than loving. But Jesus, man. Jesus engages her question. He, he comes to her and meets her where she is, in her doubts, in her skepticism, in her pushing back. When she pushes back, he doesn't push back further. No, he draws her in more, doesn't he? And he says to her in verse 13, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, the water from this well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And while she doesn't yet know who this man is, and she still doesn't quite understand exactly what it is that he's offering, that was all she needed to hear because she responds in, in verse 15 saying, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water ever again. All she knew was that the well that she had drawn water from her entire life had not once quenched her thirst. It had left her thirsty every time. And that rather than feeling contentment, she felt ashamed every time that she came. She she had no desire to ever return, no desire to ever draw water or drink from this well again. She was desperate and she had nowhere else to go, so she was buying what he was selling. And it was there, feeling lost and alone, feeling angry and ashamed that Jesus met her, that he welcomed her and he offered her an alternative. He offered her living water that will never leave you thirsty, water from a divine well that will never run dry. And what we know to be true of this passage is that Jesus is that well, isn't he? He is that source of lasting contentment that never runs dry. He is the one from whom flows the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this living water of God dwelling in you, quenching your thirst. And what Jesus is saying and what he wants you to hear is that our thirst is quenched by the indwelling of God's Spirit. That's the big idea of this first part of the passage. Our thirst is quenched by the indwelling of God's Spirit. Jesus, he's saying that everyone who who turns to and trusts in the things of this world, and you will never be content. It may quench your thirst for a bit. It may satisfy your hunger for a while, but eventually it will leave you thirsty. It will leave you hungry. It will let you down. But whoever turns to and whoever trusts in me will experience true, lasting contentment. Because as Jesus would later tell his disciples in John 14, he says, if you love me and if you follow me, the spirit will dwell with you and be in you. Our thirst is quenched by the indwelling of God's spirit of God within us. But also, please don't hear what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus isn't saying that your thirst forever goes away. Jesus isn't saying that you might not ever be thirsty again. Now, what he's saying is that you now know the location of the source. You know the location of this well, a well that has a limitless supply of living water. And so you no longer need to aimlessly wander in the desert in search of an oasis because you have the spirit dwelling in you. John Calvin, he puts it this way. He says, Jesus does not mean that we drink so that we are fully satisfied from the very first day, but only that the Holy Spirit is a constantly flowing well. So there is no danger of those who are renewed by spiritual grace ever becoming dry. And if that's the case, why do we keep drawing from sources that never satisfy? Why do we keep drinking water from wells that never quench our thirst, that always leave us thirsty? I think it's one of five reasons here. And the first is, I think, that sometimes we're ignorant, that we just don't know. Well, Like this woman, you you may not know that another well even exists. So you've drawn from the same well your entire life, drinking the same water, and while it never quenches your thirst while it never satisfies, it never leaves you content. You just assume this is all there was, that there was nothing else out there. And if that's you, I want you to hear Jesus offering you that same alternative, another way, another source, one that quenches, one that satisfies. And what I know today is that none of you leave this place today ignorant anymore. But not just that, I think number two, some of us, we're indifferent. We can be indifferent. We think every well draws from the same source, right? It's just different holes going down to the same aquifer underneath, right? That's just basic geology. There's no difference. I mean, like, the $10 bottle of water that you buy and the dollar bottle that you buy, it's the same. The, the, the still water and the fizzy water, it's the same. It's the same as your tap water. Guys, it all comes from Lake Michigan anyway, doesn't it? They just put a fancier label on some of the bottles. But we know that's not true. We know that they don't all come from the same source. And so not only can we not leave this place ignorant, we can no longer leave this place today indifferent. But number three, I think eventually we just become complacent. We become almost apathetic. We're just exhausted, worn out, and we think, you know what, this well's good enough. It's good enough, and there's probably nothing else better out there anyway, so I'm just going to hang out here. And what I've been worried about this whole series is that we might, um, is that we might mistake complacency with contentment, because hear me, they're not the same. Contentment is accepting what God has given you. It is embracing where God has you. It is allowing God to move in you and through you where he has you. But complacency is settling. Complacency is feeling stuck. Complacency is giving up. Complacency is giving in to that fear that keeps you from following where God might be leading and calling you to. Complacency leads to frustration, it leads to grumbling, and it leads you to continue to draw water from a well that will never quench your thirst. But contentment, contentment sees God at work. Contentment leads to faithfulness, contentment leads to obedience, it leads to wholeness in Christ, and it leads to gratitude wherever you are, whatever he has you doing. But yet, I think the fourth thing that some of us fall prey to is that some of us are just plain arrogant, aren't we? We don't need to do a show of hands. Some of us are just arrogant. Like, thanks, no thanks, I'm going to dig my own well. Never done one before, but I'm going to dig a well. I'm going to quench my own thirst. I'm going to be my own king. I'm going to take care of myself. And we may not always outright think that, but we live like that, don't we? Carrying a crushing weight, uh, setting impossible expectations, searching for something that you'll never find on your own no matter how long or how hard you search. We are fueled by pride that fosters disobedience just because of. But there's a fifth group that I don't want to leave out that I think many of us might find ourselves in at some point in time in our life, and it's that that we feel Inadequate. We don't feel we deserve to drink from the well of Jesus. We don't believe we deserve to taste the Holy Spirit in us. And, and you know, the church has done a really good job of being the self-appointed protectors of the well, haven't we? Determining who's worthy to be welcomed to the well. Determining who's deserving to drink this water keeping those who thirst from drinking and pushing people away from Jesus rather than pointing to Jesus, hurting people rather than helping people. And some of you are here right now. And I'm sorry. But all I need us all to hear is Jesus did not commission the church to select who can drink, but to serve all who desire to drink and share the source with all who are thirsty. Amen? We can't fulfill the great commission without living out the great commandment, pointing to Jesus by loving like Jesus. Because the truth is, none of us are worthy. The truth is, none of us are deserving. But that's what makes this incredible gift God has given, a gift of grace. It wouldn't be grace if we had earned it. It wouldn't be grace if we deserved it. It wouldn't even be a gift. It would be payment. But that's not how the gospel works, is it? Now God offered a gift of grace. The gift of his spirit. We celebrate the gift of God with us of Emmanuel in Advent. But as the sun ascended, the spirit descended, and now God dwells within us with his spirit. That is this incredible free gift of grace that Jesus is describing here, given to the undeserving, given to the unworthy, given to you and given to me. Said, man, wherever you are, whatever you have done, right? However far you have strayed or long you've been away, man, Jesus is calling to you this morning. He, he's calling you to trust Him, to trust in His authority and His ability, that He is who He says He is. He's not just a wise teacher and a good man and an example to follow. He's God. He was God in human flesh. God who has always existed, will always exist, the one through whom all things were created. And he has done or will do everything he's promised to do upon his return. He is faithful. And Jesus, he's not just calling you to trust, he's calling you to come. He's calling you to come and he's calling you to to put down that shovel and, and stop digging and to draw water from a well that never runs dry And drink of this living water that leads to eternal life. He's calling us to trust. He's calling us to come. And he's calling us to return. That whenever we thirst, whenever we feel lost, knowing that Jesus will never treat you as an outsider. He will never reject you as another. But he will welcome you as a beloved child of God. And it is our call as a church to welcome you as well as our brother and sister. Amen? But not only that, Jesus has called us to rest. He's called us to rest in the presence of God's spirit dwelling in us because there, in the presence of God, we find peace. We find true, lasting contentment. And we'll never be thirsty again. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.